Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. This week on the program, we'll hear a conversation with political writer Michael Leppert. Leppert has written extensively about Indiana politics on his blog called Contrariana. And he has recently released a book of his writing titled Contrary to Popular Belief, a chronicle of a progressive in Indiana. WFIU's Will Murphy spoke with Michael Leppert to hear about how he started writing and the current state of Indiana politics. Welcome to Profiles. I'm Will Murphy, and our guest today is Michael Leppert. He's the author of a popular blog and has recently come out with a book called Contrary to Popular Belief, a Chronicle of a Progressive in Indiana. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Will. Um, Just by way of background, Michael Leppert uh, grew up in Virginia and uh, Vincennes, Indiana, a graduate of uh, Indiana University here in Bloomington, and since uh, 1989 has called uh, Indianapolis his home. He has worked for many years as a state employee at the Indiana Boys School and then later headed the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission. Since leaving public service in 2002, he's been a governmental affairs and communications consultant and now is director of public affairs in the Governmental Affairs and Public Advocacy Practice Group at Craig DeVault in Indianapolis. Leppert uh, began writing a blog in April of uh, 2014, and then a year later, the Statehouse File published the column The Anonymous People, marking the first time the blog was published by a mainstream media outlet, and it then became a weekly installment there and has been published in a number of other outlets ever since. And this book has just come out, as I understand it, this summer. Uh, Let's start off just by asking what prompted you to get started with a blog? Uh, good question, uh, because the reason why I started has nothing to do with the reason why I do it now. Um, I had uh, been growing a practice, had been a novice to uh, – I actually sold my original um, practice and was starting my own solo shop and, and was a novice to social media and uh, had a marketing company there in town. Matchbook Creative is their name, and, and uh, they're the kind of company that will build a website and give you advice and print business cards and all those sorts of things, and, and they do a lot more than that, I come to find out. I went in and asked them, how do I, how do, I do this? How do I, how do I grow my presence? How do, I, how do I advertise on low budget? And it was sort of a new, uh, new question for them. And and uh, at the end of the discussion, the the owner of the company said, "You're going to have to you're going to have to create content, and the way to do that is to is to write a blog." And of course, for me, I didn't didn't want to do that. Didn't have the discipline, I don't think, to do it. What at least the way they thought I should do it, and what I think what they thought was more of a, a professional trade publication where you sit down and say these are the goings on in state government, which is where where I specialize, and and uh, and that seemed very uninteresting to me. Um, and uh, and I. I went home and talked to my wife about it and she said yeah you should do it and and uh, and I started doing it of course veering outside of the lines right out of the gate talking about things that were under my skin instead of just reporting the facts and um, a few people started reading it and started talking about it and I accidentally started getting some buzz about the whole thing and 
went back and talked to my people at, at Matchbook and said, well, I'm really enjoying this. And they said, well, that's not really what we told you to do. <laughs> and uh, so one thing led to another and it just became a whole different, different hobby of mine that uh, was not did not serve the purpose of its original instruction, which was generate some interest for your business. And so it's, it's basically become a, a side business, a side project that, that I've been doing for the past couple of years. Now, uh, anybody who, who uh, picks up this book um, will notice a few things right off the bat. So we've talked about you're a, a lobbyist, a consultant for clients, mostly at the State House, I presume. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you are very candid in this book uh, about your own personal life, about your own opinions. Uh, and one thing that struck me is, doesn't this adversely affect your business? Have you gotten some flack, some feedback, some negative effects from your, your writings? Uh, you know, great question. It's a, it's a point of conversation in, uh, with colleagues of mine in the business uh, more than anyone else. Um, I've not had any pushback. I've not had any, any difficulty in, in, uh, in, in being hired, being attractive to, to entities that would, would hire a, a contract lobbyist or consultant. And I haven't had a lot of pushback from politicians at least not directly to me. Uh, I think that I think that there's been a lot of discussion about and disagreement about positions that I take in the book. Um, it's very common, but and one of the reasons for the title of the book is that it's it's it, it's not a it's contrary to popular belief that someone like me can can do what I do without it adversely affecting uh, the business that I'm in. And uh, one of the things that I've found is that that the candid nature of the book has has sort of changed my relationship with the politicians that I spend my time with in, in a, in a in positive a way. way, in a good way. Um, they, they talk to me about policy more so now than they did two years ago. They understand that what's been written has not just been, you know, some baseless rant that's been thrown up against the, the computer screen or the iPad screen and, and, uh, and just for entertainment only, there's been some thought put into it, some research put into every column that I do. And so that has been a, something that I've had to stay committed to because it's easy to be the, the barber or the taxi driver and say, you know, I know all about this without knowing anything about it. Um, a, a lot of what has been the process of my writing has been uh, doing a lot of reading, a lot of research and being very certain about the facts that I'm using to base my opinions on. And so the, the politicians have been actually um, very good to me. It's been an interesting experience. I have to be careful in that I'm careful about being correct. That's the main thing. Um, being wrong is one thing. Being incorrect is something different. And so um, I've been pretty pretty good. My record's pretty good in that regard. Now, to an outsider, maybe you can give us a peek behind the curtain. I've been to the State House for an, uh, on a number of occasions. Mm-hmm. And it is almost like a separate culture. Uh, everybody is issued, it seems like, uh, penny loafers, and they have the same suit and the same hairstyle, and uh, uh, they, they they go to the same manicurists, the whole thing. And uh, um, so I wonder, among the, the cast of characters that you deal with, whether that's your fellow uh, lobbyists or political figures or state employees and executive leaders, do they all have a sense of where each other stands politically. I ask that because I see these lobbyists and it seems like they're really trying to put on the poker face, that Mm -hmm. they're carrying the issue Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter if it's Republican, Democrat or something else. They don't let those leanings show in public and they argue the issue. 
one of the things I think is misunderstood outside of the state house, um, and, and you you know you've pegged the the appearance of the place pretty well. I mean that that's exactly as it looks to just about anybody walking in, or people who aren't there every day like I am, and people who are uh, still see the the description that you gave. But one of the things that I think is misunderstood outside of the state house is ninety percent of what we do inside has nothing to do with partisanship. Um, now the legislators themselves have partisan battles. Um, and they have parties to serve, and they have they have other members of their party that they lo- they want to see elected, and those kinds of things. And so th- there are plenty of things that are decided for partisan reasons when the two sides are are bickering with each other. When it gets into the game of of lobbying, we're normally in there for a business interest or a, or an advocacy interest for a not for profit or some sort of organization that doesn't care whether or not a Republican's voting yes or a Democrat's voting yes or the other way around, all they want is the result. And so I've had some good friends explain, I've, I've heard them explain it, and I've adopted some of these some of these talking points is that, you know, clients hire me for results. They don't necessarily hire me for form. And there are plenty of them who, you know, certainly don't want me misrepresenting them or doing something they wouldn't wouldn't want to be attached with um, anything you know unseemly um, on their behalf that's for sure but when when they've engaged me they, they normally have engaged me because they they know what the finish line is they know what they want and it, it doesn't matter whether or not it's a Republican that carries it or a group of Republicans that carry it or a group of Democrats that defeat it or whatever it is that they're that they're charged with. So it's easy for a lobbyist, if he has any discipline at all, he or she has any discipline at all, to go in and, and make their, their partisan stance irrelevant. Um, because in most cases, it is irrelevant. It, you know, in all my time there, I've never gone in there and, say, and said, I've got to have this because Democrats need it, or I have to have this because Republicans need it. That's a recipe for not going very far with an issue from my perspective. Um, but the partisan nature of the of the uh, of the of the elected officials is is in the background of every move that they make. That's for sure. Uh, we might mention for folks who are tuning in uh, how they get to your blog uh, so that they could uh, listen to it perhaps while we're talking here. What's the uh, what's the web address? Right. You can you can get to it two ways. You can get to it at michaelleppert.com, just my name dot com. Uh, but historically, it's been at contrariana. Dot com, which rhymes with Indiana, which is where that came from. <laughs> um, it used to be Indy Contrariana, but I wanted to make it easier for people, so it's been shortened to just Contrariana. So it's C-O-N-T-R-A-R-I-A-N-A, Contrariana.com. We might speak to the subtitle of your, uh, of your book, A Chronicle of a Progressive in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And you've been doing this since uh, the early 2000s in terms of uh, being an advocate. And then before right. that, a state employee. Right. Has it, what kind of uh, road has it been for a progressive in the state house over the past uh, twenty-five years? Because my impulse is to think it's been a pretty depressing journey. You know, frustrating. Depressing would be strong. <laughs> um, fr- frustrating um, in many ways. But there's been there have been a lot of great things happen here too. So I, I don't I don't really think that that those would be the first words that I would use. The, the governmental process and the public policy process is so long term. And, and I think that when you say the last 25 years, and I, and I flash back to when I first walked into the State House and the impression that I had of the place back then um, and compare it to the impression I have of it now, um, those are definitely two different universes. A lot of things have happened 
since then. You know, Governor Pence is the fifth governor that I've had experience with. You know, the the legislature is wildly different. To to think that there would be a 71-29 split in the House back when I first started working in the building, the House was controlled by the other party. And so that's a huge swing to to see what's happened in the Senate um, with the districts drawn, the maps drawn, the way they are drawn, and the the lack of competitiveness in those uh, political battles is... It makes for a, it makes for a very skewed and and um, un uh, unopen I guess uh, there's it's just not a very open uh, discussion uh, from a variety of political directions in the in the Senate right now and so even Republican people Republican lobbyists have said over time that the process is always served by uh, more balance and the lack of balance in recent years has been um, frustrating that's for sure. I think it's even frustrating for Republicans. It's not. It's not that. It's not that Republicans uh, that are that are in the in the business of of being in charge of the process feel like this is all a big party for them because it's not. Um, they have a lot of internal squabbling that they wouldn't have, uh, that they wouldn't otherwise have. They have uh, many more masters to serve. Lots more. A lot more districts that that matter to the party, and that makes it difficult. Uh, leadership has you know only so many committees that they can provide chair opportunities to, and. And so there are a lot of challenges that didn't exist a few years ago. So that that's that's what goes on now. But um, there have been good things that have happened in Indiana. Some of them were harder than they should have been. A lot of them recently in particular have been angering, actually. So, uh, you, you know, progress is something that is two steps forward and one step back, and, 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 it's, and it's a long process. And so what I think what goes on now with Twitter and, and – uh, uh, social media and the speed at which we learn things and and polls and the needle moving so much faster, um, people don't understand that America's a big ship and it, it takes a long time to get it turned and and uh, and patience is is hard to come by when when you realize that this is a ten year plan and 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 people only have ten seconds of attention span. So right. it's uh, th- those things have changed a lot over time. Well, we'll get into some of the uh, meat and potatoes of what you talk about in the book and on your blog. And, of course, this political season gives us a whole minefield of uh, material to talk about in the in the coming hour. But let me just remind our listeners that we're talking with Michael Leppert. He's the author of a new book, Contrary to Popular Belief, a Chronicle of a Progressive in Indiana. And it's based on a blog that he's been operating for about the past uh, two years, since April of 2014. Can we talk about your personal history a little bit? Sure. What is it about public policy and public affairs that draws you uh, as you're growing up in Virginia, then then uh, coming to Indiana, going to Vincennes? Uh, what was the draw of getting a degree in public policy? This may not surprise you at all. It doesn't surprise people that, that know me well that when I was a, a teenager, I was a bit of a troublemaker. And uh, and so when you're when you're a teenager and you're a troublemaker, you you find your way into juvenile court and probation departments and all those sorts of things. And when you when you have uh, um, sort of a, a watchful, uh, analytical eye of of the of the experiences you have, even even when you're a troublemaker, you walk out of places like that and think, boy. They're doing it wrong. You know, they could do this better. And uh, so, you know, when you're immature, you you think of all these great ways that they could do it better to make things better for you. Um, But, you know, that's the way I think a lot of uh, a lot of us uh, in America, you know, we've had generations and generations of self-governing 
here. And so a lot of us think that way. And so when you, when you interact with the government and you do it at an early age and you, uh, you're, you're prone to learning and interested in learning about things, that, that's what got it started. And so that's, that's how I ended up uh, being involved in criminal justice and, and public affairs when I was in college. And, uh, and I got a job, which was an awesome job, at the Indiana Boys School um, right out of college, and I loved it there. Um, what did uh, you do there? I, well, I started as a correctional officer while I was finishing my degree. And at the Indiana Boys School, correctional officer is a lot like being a parent. Um, you know, you have you have all the security and the safety and all that sort of stuff, uh, and keeping the doors locked and all that kind of stuff. But but they're they're still kids. I mean, they're fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year old kids for the most part out there at the time. And and then I became a, a counselor and a program manager. I ended up being the intensive uh, the the program manager in the intensive treatment unit, the maximum security unit that we had there uh, for the last uh, three years that I was at the at uh-huh. the boys' school. So I had the worst thirty six kids that Indiana had to offer. Uh, my last, uh, my last two and a half or three years at at the Indiana Boys School, and and I tell people that today, and they think, well, what that must have been hell on earth, you know? And it's like, no, actually, I loved that job, and I didn't, I was not happy about leaving that job, and I, I still to this day miss miss the Boys School, and it's, it doesn't even operate that way anymore. But um, what do that, you miss about it? Uh, the the kids, um, I miss the kids. Um, I it was a. Uh, uh, a lot at, at the boys school at the time there were not a lot of staff members that would start there when they were just turning 22 so i was very young and i wasn't much younger than, wasn't much older than the kids who were there um first of all so i understood a lot of the stuff that that they were dealing with in pop culture at the time um but as i started growing older and the kids stayed the same age because it was the same age group the whole time um it just it kept me connected so and and still to this day, I'm very interested in in young people because of that. I just I always will be, and that's one of the things that that has that keeps me involved today. You really felt like you were making a difference, and so right. when you would go in and you would have these thirty kids from these thirty you know horrifying backgrounds and then not much of a an outlook um, in life, and you'd be able to get one of them or three of them or five of them out of any group and see a change happening in them the the reward that you got from that was pretty uh, pretty phenomenal. So it's it's hard to replace that when you become a regulator at the utility commission, or when you become a <laughs> lobbyist at the state house. The feedback is not as as blatant and in your face. The successes are are really quite uh, exhilarating. I want to come back to that if we have time. But but you raise an interesting question. How do you make the segue from the boys' school to utility rates? <laughs> well. That's the that's the beauty of the School of Public and Environmental Affairs here at, here at IU. Uh, actually, it was it was a, a simple thing that there was, it was a communications job that they needed um, at the time, and um, you know I had the skills to to communicate, and and the background uh, was SPIA that qualified me to come in, and and the first job at the at the Utility Commission was the uh, was the Assistant Director of Consumer Affairs, which was sort of like being the Assistant Judge Wapner. Of the of the utility court in Indiana, which that's what I, what I pegged it when I came in there, and and uh, and shortly after I I had taken that job, the director moved on to a different position, and I got promoted, and so I became the division head, you know, six months into my time at the utility commission, and so that was in '95, and then in '96 we had a new governor, which which led to a new chairman of the of the commission itself and so um, and his his name is Bill McCarty and he's he's my my mentor in in public service and so when he came in I started learning from him and and uh, he started having me do some 
some more fun things than just being the Wapner. But but I, I got to do a lot of a lot of things, and it was a fun time um, as far as regulatory stuff goes because of the public policy that's involved there. And it took a while. It took a while to transition from the correctional setting that I was in to a bureaucratic one. But uh, after I did and learned how to enjoy it, learned how to see the opportunities again to uh, to make some difference in people's lives. You know, everybody in Indiana has, is a utility consumer of some sort. And so I got around a lot. And uh, when, when Chairman McCarty got appointed, he had a very um, distinct view of making the commission more active. And when you were the external affairs guy that got to inherit his leadership um, when he came there, because I was there before him, when he said we're going to be a more active commission, I thought, well, what's he talking about? We were pretty active before he got here. Well, <laughs> I learned what he meant, and, and it was it was a very different time uh, after he got there. And we had uh, we had a lot of fun, and we did a lot of great things. And uh, it taught me that, and my dad used to say that there is no good field that can't use a good person. And uh, and if you're if you're fired up about being a public servant, as as I was, as Bill was, uh, we got to have a lot of lot of fun doing a lot of good stuff during those years. And then you make the migration to consultancy. And what was the catalyst for that? Uh, Well, we were into uh, Governor O'Bannon's second term. I had become sort of a mouthpiece of of utility business under under the O'Bannon administration umbrella, although I wasn't, you know, I I didn't work for the governor directly. The the commission's appointed by the governor and, and a bipartisan commission at that. But I knew well enough that at some point when when Governor O'Bannon's term ended, that the person in my job was not going to be um, retained. And so the opportunity and the timing was was right for me to go out and and uh, and do some different things. And there there were obvious opportunities in the in the contracting world at the time. And so it was just that that those were the things that drove the decision. Again, we're talking with Michael Leppert, the author of Contrary to Popular Belief, a Chronicle of a Progressive in Indiana. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Profiles. I'm Will Murphy, and our guest today is Michael Leppert. He's an Indianapolis-based consultant and lobbyist and author of the recently published book, Contrary to Popular Belief, A Chronicle of a Progressive in Indiana. It's uh, based on the writings that he's been doing the past couple of years on a, a blog that we've been talking about as well, but we haven't really gotten to the substance of what the the book deals with, which I think will be difficult to do because there's a lot in this book. It's not just politics. It's not just inside baseball about uh, political process and state procedure. There's a lot of stories about a dad who's trying to come to terms with his kids going to college, the fury of parking in downtown Indianapolis, and the (laughs) idiocy of some columnists. There's a lot of material in here. are there topics that have generated particular interest that you've written about that you get particular response about or uh, that you've heard back from people about uh, something that really upset them that surprised you? Uh, you know, uh, 
the the spike in interest in in my writing really came from the the Rifra explosion uh, that happened in March, um, late February, March is when it came to a boiling point. I had actually written about it in December prior to the legislative session of 2015. I don't know why it stuck out to me as something that was headed into troubled water uh, when it did, because as far as um, uh, dangerous social type um, legislation, on its face, it didn't look any more troubling than a whole long list of other troubled pieces of legislation that deal with those issues. But for one reason or another, it, uh, it struck me as, as, a, as a problem. And, but, when, but when it blew up, of course, everybody in Indiana and everybody in America there for a, a couple of weeks was writing and talking <laughs> about it. And so I think that when the, the, national, the national people started paying attention to what people from Indiana were saying about it, um, that, that, that explosion, I didn't realize that that writing a couple of things about that would, would cause the kind of interest that it did. That surprised me. But I got used to that pretty quickly. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't like my phone was ringing off the hook. I was just looking at, a, at an analytics page that showed a graph that looked like it had been you know, pumped full of steroids. But, <laughs> uh, but that, that surprised me for, for a minute or two. While it was sinking in, what a, what a, oh, what a spectacle Indiana had made it of itself with that uh, mistake. But, uh, you know, besides that, the other things that have surprised me is uh, when I write personal things. Um, almost always, and it's probably because the people that read me every week get tired of the political banter. And when I write something that's not political, it's, it's refreshing to them. I'm not sure if that's right or not. But, you know, w- there have been a couple of eulogies that I've written, some untimely passings um, that, I've, that I've written pieces about that were very uh, significant, I think, in the in the blogosphere, and then a couple of couple of personal personal pieces that are all in the book um, about my dad, about my children, um, those kinds of things. I think that I, I don't think that columnists um, humanize themselves enough anymore. I read a lot of columns, and and I used to read a lot of columns, and now that I, I am a columnist, I read ten times more than I used to. And when you're sharing opinions with people, I think that from time to time you have to you have to let them know where this is coming from. And that's, you know, one of the big reasons for the book is that it's not just some guy who thinks he knows everything. There's a reason why I think the way I do. You know, my dad had a very profound effect on me and uh, some of it was very surprising. But I wanted to make sure that people knew who he was and and why I think some of the things that I do. And a lot of it comes from him. And so, uh, you know, when you just read the rants, you just sound like an angry and angry for me, I'm I'm approaching angry old man status, you know, so you gotta, you know, you gotta give context on, on who you are as a person. The, the, the personal things surprise me how popular they are. Cause when I do them, I almost always get feedback from, from people who I haven't talked to for a long time or have never even met saying, boy, that really struck a chord for me, or boy, I really had an experience like that with my dad or my son or whatever. And so it's, those are the things I think that surprised me the most. So what for you, which, which of the entries that you've done over the past couple of years has been most personally significant? You referenced the, uh, uh, the piece about your father. Uh, that was a moving piece. You talk about your sons going off to, one of your sons going off to college. Mm-hmm. What have been the, the sort of personal uh, columns that you've written about that have been particularly meaningful? You know, I uh, at the book release party a couple of weeks ago, um, I, I talked a little bit about uh, an experience I had with my dad. Um, I can remember vividly, um, and it's it's in the it's in a column that I wrote in the book uh, in the Rifra 
chapter called A Prayer for Riffra. And what I did with the column was I blend uh, the prayer of St. Francis in with some advice that I would have given uh, to people who were considering that awful legislation. Um, and not just it being awful because of the words on the paper, but what it said about who we are in Indiana or what it mistakenly said um, about who we are in Indiana. And I remember um, the change that went on in me um, with regard to how I viewed the LGBT community from the time that I first got slapped in the face with having to think about it differently. And that was when I was 18 years old and Rock Hudson was dying. Um, and for those of us who remember Rock Hudson dying and remember the AIDS crisis of the, of the mid-'80s, I, I was graduating high school um, when all of that was happening. And I talk about seeing it was on TV. I, I can't remember what the joke was, but somebody made some reference to Rock Hudson, ha-ha, and it was some sort of gay AIDS bashing joke um, that, that I heard. I think it was on TV, but I know where I was standing. I was standing in the dining room of my house in Vincennes. And I remember laughing about it. And my dad heard what I was laughing at. And he looked at me and he got, got my attention. He, and he said, he said, that poor man is dying. And turned around and walked away. I thought, I, I can't believe that I was standing there laughing about somebody who's dying. What difference does it make why he's dying? And, and, and the disappointment in my dad's voice, I can still see it. You know, it was 31 years ago. It was 30 years ago when I wrote the column. Um, that changed me. Um, the, I, you know, I'd never met anyone who I knew was gay. I never knew anybody from the LGBT community. And, and at that point, I'd never met anybody who had been infected with the virus. Um, but uh, that was the beginning of, of, a, of a different sort of growth in me, that one instance. Um, and, and there are a handful of them that I've had with my dad that, that you know, were made up of a, of, a, of a small list of moments, and, and that was one of them for me. So, so writing about that and putting that in context for people who, who spend a lot of time making public policy but not thinking about the, you know, the bare facts, you know, what this really means. And, and in, in Rock Hudson's case, he was a poor man that was dying. And, uh, and, and making it uh, bigger than that, uh, making it more complicated and, and making it funny um, was a was a real uh, uh, regretful time, I think, in, in American history. Um, so uh, that was a big thing for me. But um, broader topics, I can't think of any that, that had a more profound effect on me than the way that uh, the Syrian refugee situation was mishandled by our governor and uh, many other governors um, last November. I just want to pause and say that's one of the things I liked about the book is there are multiple occasions where I can learn about something other than the issue at hand. So, for example, as a, as a result of reading your piece on uh, Syrian refugee process, now I understand why K's are backwards in box scores. Uh, <laughs> right, Because right. We, we struck out while looking. Right, right. So uh, – That actually took a lot of research. <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of research for that, for that paragraph. <laughs> That's the thing I think people don't realize sometimes when they're reading a piece is it's only 42 words in a paragraph, but sometimes it takes a couple of hours to, to find the facts behind it. Right. Well, maybe you could unpack that a little bit, uh, uh, the Syrian refugee situation and, and the governor's uh, response to it. Why did it hit you so hard? I, you know, um, one, the first reason why it hit me so hard is because – it was a good example of bad government. On its face, I knew that what was, what was going on and what was sweeping across the country that week had all kinds of legal problems, all kinds of jurisdictional problems, and, and for good reason. 
um, when individual states were starting to say, well, we're not going to accept Syrian refugees, a lot of this went on during the week in in the state house during what we call organization day. Um, and so I spent uh, I spent some time talking to some people in the building that week when, when this was all breaking. I think the governor here was one of the early announcements um, of refusing to accept Syrian refugees, or ex- at least that's what the announcement was, we're not going to accept Syrian refugees um, that Monday. And, th- and then the next day was Tuesday, Organization Day, and so a lot of us were gathered. And, and of course, nobody in my world had any professional representation of anyone that had a connection to the situation. We were just looking at it from a public policy respect. But I could tell very early on um, by the way this was happening that, first of all, it it appeared to be very orchestrated with the Republican Governors Association. Um, It seemed to be a a poking of the eye of, uh, of the other party, and in this case, the other party personified, which is President Obama. And so we're not going to do this. And we're pretty sure that that the response from from uh, voters is going to be well at least somebody's standing up for us for a change, and so the popular response to it was also not surprising to me. You know, when Governor Pence comes out and says we're not going to accept Syrian refugees until we know it's safe, does it surprise anybody that seventy or eighty percent of Indiana says rah rah to that? Well. Of course, because you're not going to put another moment's thought into it, and you're not going to – most of those 70 or 80 percent aren't going to think about all the things involved with how, how a refugee gets here in the first place. And so I spent a lot of time and got to know some people over at Exodus Immigration um, during the process. And this was a very – this is a great example of, of what civic engagement's all about for me. I have no interest in this professionally at all. But I had an opportunity to learn about it, and you know the Exodus Refugee or Exodus Immigration Center is just around the corner from my house in Indianapolis. And Cole Varga um, is the executive director over there, and very open and very accessible, and and he, he can explain the situation from start to finish on a moment's notice, and and uh, it's a it's a fantastic asset for us. But the fact of the matter is, it's an American thing. It's an American perspective to be available to refugees that need a place to go when they need to escape from a place like Syria. And to believe that it's more important to not be American by telling them, we don't want you here anymore, was maddening to me. And so um, the decision seemed to be not well thought out. And the more I dug into it, the more obvious that was. And uh, the more I learned about the legalities and, and, the, and the system itself, the more um, just out of line with American values, the decision was. And so here we are, and we still have court cases pending on this. And it is obvious how these court cases are going to end, that the governor act, acted outside of his, his authority. And not just this governor, all of them were mm-hmm. wrong. And, uh, and, and that's just, it's an outrage. And it was obvious uh, short-term political payback that came from that. And so, uh, you know, there were, there, there just a, a whole long list of things in, in that, in that, uh, um, section of that chap- chapter of the book that people should read. I could write a whole nother chapter uh, about what's happened there since, you know, with, with, uh, you know, Judge Pratt's order and, and all of the obviously flawed legal arguments that are going to end in, in, uh, in the, in uh, the governor's order being overturned. Um, it's just a, a regretful, obviously, um, political decision that was made that was not very well thought out. And, and I think we ought to admit our defeat and move on. It's, I think it's fairly clear in the book, uh, and it may be clear from what you just said, that you're not the biggest fan of Mike Pence right now. 
Uh, maybe we should take a little break, regroup, regather uh, our thoughts, uh, and uh, begin the conversation again. We'll talk a little bit about the current political climate, which is food for a lot of conversation, no doubt. A reminder to our listeners, we're talking with Michael Leppert. He's the author of Contrary to Popular Belief, A Chronicle of a Progressive in Indiana. It's a compilation of some of his uh, writings from his uh, blog over the past couple of years. I'm Will Murphy. You're listening to Profiles. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Profiles. I'm Will Murphy, and our guest today is Michael Leppert. He's a uh, lobbyist. Yes, we'll use that word. And in fact, he wrote a, a blog just uh, yesterday about this very topic, <laughs> lobbyists and unicorns, that uh, you might want to check out at contrariana.com. And he's also the author of Contrary to Popular Belief, a Chronicle of a Progressive in Indiana. You mentioned in uh, framing this book, and, and and forgive me, I can't remember if it's in one of the introductory paragraphs or on the jacket itself, but you talk about using the book as a guide during a historically chaotic political season. Presuming uh, someone goes out and buys this book as a result of our conversation today, how is it a guide of the current chaotic political season? Well, you know, the sad thing about the book is that it went to print in the middle of May. And uh, and for those paying attention, even for those that aren't paying much attention, you, you'll know that a lot of things have happened since the middle of May. So uh, uh, at the time, the the chaos that I was referring to was we were heading into a governor's election that should have been a, a slam dunk reelect. And, uh, you know, we've not had a governor not win reelection since we went to two terms back in the 70s. Um, we, we haven't had we haven't had any governor run for re-election and lose, and, and so um, this was going to be the first time that that was going to be, uh, in my opinion, not inevitable, but it was going to be a difficult re-elect for for Governor Pence. And so, the reason why John Gregg saw the opportunity to run again was because of Governor Pence's failings. After John Gregg um, didn't win in 2012, I think it would have surprised anybody back then. If he would have immediately said, I'm running again four years from now, and I don't think that he was immediately planning on doing that, um, but the opportunity presented itself because of the failings of the governor. And so that uh, uh, unpopular, um, the unpopular things that he did, he sort of walked into that. And so that was the chaos that I was talking of um, at the state level. It hasn't he, gotten clearer, though. It hasn't gotten clearer. I, I think that that chaos um, still is there. That That hadn't really changed. With uh, Eric Holcomb, um, and, and I do have the opportunity to to write about what I think is one of the biggest things, and most people wouldn't list this in their top two or three issues of failure with regard to the Pence administration. But I think losing Lieutenant Governor Elsperman to, to Ivy Tech is is one of my top two. Why? Because she she had done an absolutely fantastic job. She had traveled the state. She had she had energized people in the um, 
in the broadband space, uh, broadband deployment and shovel-ready uh, type legislative initiatives that had gone on. And I do spend a lot of time professionally in that space. So I did get to see her her work turn into something that mattered um, in that regard. I think that during the time that chaos had struck the administration back in, in 2015, that she had kept her head above head above water and, and, had, and had stayed um, in a very difficult time, it kept all the mess from getting on to her at all. I think that uh, her commitment to no negative campaigning absolutely played a role in, into her not staying on the ticket this year. Um, she was not going to get involved with what we're seeing on TV, and, and I think that that had a lot to do with her decision about whether or not she should stay and, and, and the uh, party's decision on whether or not she should stay as well. And again, she's on the right side of that battle. And then the last thing was when she fought to get Carly Fiorina onto the stage during the, the debates and has, has stood up for women in public service, she doesn't just happen to be a woman that was in that job. She took that responsibility seriously. And, and her commitment to that and her commitment to women in leadership programs is is really unmatched. And, and it would have been nice, not just nice, it's it's. Nice is, is an insulting word, really, for it. Um, it. She she is the kind of personality that Indiana needed in that job because she was um, fit to be their nominee. And I think that things would be a lot different in Indiana right now had she stayed in the position and had been the, the lieutenant governor when our current governor had been picked to be on the national ticket. Replacing her was precedent-setting. It's the first lieutenant governor that needed to be replaced the way she was replaced. And why were we not being... Uh, stewards of our public policy processes and make sure, putting, you know, giving that the attention that it needs so that if this ever comes up again, and as chaos becomes the new rule, we should be prepared for these kinds of things in the future. We should have, we should have uh, spent some time on process so that we could be uh, uh, positioned to address it. Um, I, I wrote a column in the book about they seem to be ignoring that part of it as well. And, and in the end, the legislature didn't do a very good job of laying out a, a system that can be followed like a playbook the next time this happens. And so... I was, you know, we remember when Governor O'Bannon passed away um, and the legislature did a fantastic job of getting together in a bipartisan way to deal with that crisis. But what they didn't do was plan for the next one. And that succession process is something that I think could have been handled a little bit more uh, from a futuristic perspective at the time. But If you were to handicap the election season, both at the national level and at the state level, I mean, this is going to be uh, a profound change should, for example, there be two Democratic senators from the state of Indiana, should that happen. Uh, a lot of interesting state things as well. What's your handicap for what's going to happen come November 8th? Let's see. We've got, we've got uh, a little ways to go. Um, but I think with the conventions behind us, and I think there are no more opportunities because of that July 15th date on changing people on the ballot here in Indiana. We have no more new or, new or late arrivals uh, to come. I think that's going to be very difficult for Evan Bayh to lose. I think that he is likely going to win um, the U.S. Senate seat. And I agree with you that, that we're, we're going to have for the first time since Birch Bayh and Vance Hartke um, two, uh, two Democrat U.S. senators. Both of our U.S. senators would be very moderate representations. Uh, so it's not as if 
uh, they're a far cry from Birch by Vance Harkey. <laughs> um, uh, having... So not the good news that the progressive might want. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm, I am resigned to the fact that there is no candidate out there that would do everything the way I would. So I'm, <laughs> I'm okay with that. But, uh, you know, on, on the U.S. Senate side, I think that there are two, two good candidates. So um, I've, I've watched Congressman Young. I don't agree with some of the things that he's done or some of the things that he um, – uh, some of the policies that he subscribes um, or, or, or uh, leans on, but uh, but they have two candidates there that are both both qualified. But I think that Evan Bayh wins that. I think Hillary Clinton's going to win, and I think it's going to be an an epic defeat for Donald Trump. A sort of like a Mondale situation, or a... it's it's getting it's getting there. He is an uh, he's undisciplined and. Uh, his intentions are not pure. You know, it, it's. Uh, Can it, one say that about a politician <laughs> and and me, have it mean something? Well, uh, he has redefined that that entire <laughs> that entire sentiment. That's for sure. He's he's just not fit to be president. And uh, and, and the longer he talks, and the more we get to know him, the more clear that is. Um, it, it's you know, I've known a lot of people. I, I know a lot of people who eight months ago would look me in the eye who are Republicans and tell me we just got to make sure that he's not the guy, you know, anybody but him, anybody but him. Um, He's not fit that are on board now or trying to be on board, trying to stay on board. And I feel for them. You know, they're they're members of a party. Um, But the party is has lost it on this one. You know, they they let it get away from them. And it's it's 40 percent of the primary voters who decided that Donald Trump should be their guy. And uh, and and the, the numbers are what they are. The process is what it is, and this is what happens when the stars align. You can put a guy up, and it's happened before. This isn't this isn't the first time that a party's had a candidate on top of their ticket that they wish was different. Um, but uh, but this he's not going to be able to close. He doesn't have. I, I thought that as soon as he became the presumptive nominee, they were going to lock him up for a couple of weeks and teach him how to be a candidate. And uh, they don't have the ability. He's unlockable. To, he's unlockable. And uh, and so he's not safe and he doesn't make people feel safe, which is what they were trying to preach at the convention, make America safe again. Sixty five percent of America doesn't feel safer with Donald Trump in charge. And you don't win with with that sort of uh, that sort of sentiment out there. So that's that's a big problem. And then what happens as a result of having someone at the top of the ticket that is so unpopular and is going to lose, I think, in an epic fashion has a has a big trickle down effect. And we're starting to see. A lot of very uh, significant Republicans across the country who were starting to hedge their bets and try to figure out how we can, how they can uh, keep Republicans in, in a, at least a, a manageable position after that. So I think that that is a big problem that, you know, that when I talk about chaos, describe it as chaos, I was talking about him. I don't know what he does to the party. I thought that if it were Cruz, they still would have lost, but it would have been close and it would have been would have been a defeat based on ideology instead of mania. And that's what we're dealing with right now. It's mania. I think that Hillary Hillary's campaign has been hurt because of Donald Trump's tone. I think that she has to talk about emails too much because we don't get to talk about ideology because Donald doesn't have any. And there's not there's not that, that's not even the debate that we're having right now. So the whole the whole process has been uh, has been bad. I, I quote the state legislator Dave Ober in the in the book. 
he he nailed it. And I think about that quote every couple of weeks when he said, this election is garbage. And, and, <laughs> and it's not because a lot of people want to say we don't have good candidates on either side. I believe that she's a qualified candidate. And I thought she'd be the candidate two years ago. So I was comfortable with her being the Democrat nominee a long time ago. But the election is garbage because it's just been it's just been reduced to a, a mudsling of things that are irrelevant to to American progress. Now, what's the the scuttlebutt in the state house among the professionals, mm-hmm. uh, the professional politician class, about why Governor Pence chose this ticket? Whatever else one says about Governor Pence, I hear that he's a man of profound principle; that he believes what he says and acts as he believes, and that's gotten him in trouble, and he's had trouble sometimes doing the political side of things. Why does he side with someone who is clearly not of the same mold that he is? Um, The insiders in the Statehouse, none none of us are surprised that he jumped at the opportunity to be on the ticket. We're surprised by how bad Donald Trump is as a candidate, but whoever the whoever the nominee was, you know, a faceless, nameless, uh, generic Republican candidate calling on on Governor Pence to be his vice president nomination, all of us in the state house would have said, of course, he'll take the job. And the reason why is because all of us are under the assumption that the reason why he ran for governor in the first place was because it was a resume builder for what I think he thinks his calling is, which is being the the leader of the country. You know, he came from Congress. He ran for Congress a couple of times, I think, before he won the first um, before he won in in 94, the the first time. And he's had his eye on that ball. Um, The policy issues that I think get him going in the morning are federal um, I think he cares about the federal jurisdiction more than he does the state jurisdiction. Uh, he he'll mix it up on immigration and he'll mix it up on on environmental plans. He'll mix it up on national health care plans. He'll mix it up on choice issues. Um, those are all things that are generally in the arena of the federal government. And so he's been consistent, in my opinion. That's the arena that is most attractive to him. So I think that the situation obviously could be better with a with a better candidate on top. But I will also say that I'm um, as much as I disagree with with his policies and with his delivery as governor, he's been an awfully good VP candidate um, so far. There's hard; it's hard for anybody to complain about the job that he's done in dealing with an unmanageable situation that he's in. Unlike uh, you know, I made fun of Sarah Palin, and I brought the Sarah Palin example back into play when he got picked. You know, Sarah Palin can still fill a room. You know, all these years later, even after her terrible campaign when she ran. So he would have the platform to continue to discuss the things that matter to him, even if he ran and lost as the VP. And so there wasn't a lot of downside for him taking that job. And I truly believe that he probably would have lost in the fall had he stayed, which is a very strange situation for a guy who who was facing defeat in a reelect to get promoted in the middle of that campaign, but uh, again, chaos is the is the word of the word of the, <laughs> the scri- descriptive word of the campaign. So, um, right. so yeah, I, I, I none, none of us on the inside were surprised by any of that. And Holcomb or Greg in November, Greg. Um, I think that it would have been a very difficult race for Speaker Greg had they put Susan Brooks on the ballot. Um, I think that women 
are going to come out and vote for John Gregg over Eric Holcomb. I think he's going to win in that demographic. He's certainly going to win in all the in Indianapolis and probably in Northwest Indiana. I think that the the urban areas that are very upset about the way RIFRA was handled and the way immigration was handled and in the way um, the choice issues were handled. I think they're going to come out and vote against the Republican ticket, and it's going to be easy to vote against Republicans when you're voting against Donald Trump, you're voting for Evan Bayh, and number three is Mike Pence uh, repeat. So that's uh, I think it's going to be difficult for Eric Holcomb to win. And the money thing is a whole other debate. The campaign finance problems that come from the mishandling of the Pence governor account is going to be a real hamstring. I mean, Holcomb's been nominated for quite a while already, and I haven't seen a commercial yet. And he's, you know, the clock is running. And I know those guys, and they know how to run campaigns, and they know what they're doing. But there's obviously something keeping them back from introducing him to the state of Indiana, and that's what they need to do. They've got they've got uh, not a lot of time left to get that done, so they're playing from behind. I think we'll have to leave the, uh, the subject there. Uh, but before we close this hour, uh, I do want to ask you, given the subtitle of this uh, book that you've written, a Chronicle of a Progressive in Indiana. What's your long-term forecast? I mean, this is a state that has Eugene Victor Debs and Tara Haute at the beginning of the 20th century, um, Mike Pence and Eric Holcomb and all the rest, Brian Bosma and, and uh, David Long at the beginning of the 21st century. Is it enough to, to make a progressive sort of abandon hope? <laughs> uh Yes, it is. There are there are lots of lots of people that call themselves progressives that have abandoned hope, and and I I consider myself a, a progressive not because I'm far left wing. You know, I, I'm I'm pretty. Um, it it pains people to say this, but every every evaluation that I take on my political stance puts me pretty close to the middle. I become liberal sounding because I think we should do something about guns, and uh, and it doesn't mean I think we should confiscate guns. It means I think we should do something about guns. It's just that simple. You know, the status quo is not good enough. That's one thing. And then I, I obviously believe in a woman's right to choose. Uh, and so those two things make me a, 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 a left winger here in Indiana. <laughs> for the most part, what we do, how we govern is, is, not, is not that crazy for me. So progress is, is something that the parties and the party that's in control right now is there. They're in charge, and and oftentimes that that inertia is is just used to serve reelection and to serve staying in control instead of taking out your forty to ten control in the Senate <clears throat> and seventy one twenty nine control in the House for a spin and doing some you know wow things you know do something with your two and a quarter billion dollar surplus that you can look back on and say, you know, if not for the fantastic situation we were in, we wouldn't have been able to build that bridge or we wouldn't have been able to construct that college or we wouldn't have been able to wipe out the disease that was that was killing Scott County or, you know, whatever it is. You know, I would hate to be the guy in charge of a $2 billion surplus and only use it for political value. That $2 billion could make a lot of people's lives better. You know, and that's that's an example of how a progressive thinks. Why don't you take that money and make some good with it and, and instead of using it to tout how great you are with money? You know, uh, I'm very unhappy about the way we handle the surplus. Um, and the surplus is growing, not shrinking, and celebrating the growth of it 
has no political ideology. It's a, it's a good example of lack of ideology. Uh, a tax and spender wants to spend that money. A conservative would want you to refund it. Either way, you don't keep it. And, and that's, that's the problem with this. We have found ourselves in a spot where the people of Indiana are going to look at that surplus and say we should always have one. No, we shouldn't. We should be shooting for zero. We should be taxing what we need, and we should be spending it on the things we committed to spend it on. There is no government that should hold our money. That's not what they're there to do. If you want to do good things with money, you're not going to invest it in government. So it's 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 a I, exactly it's a silly it's a silly thing to say. And so um, as that money grows, these guys are going to find themselves in a spot. I would love to be in charge of the money if there was a will to do good things with it. And and right now, if without the will to do good things with it, the only thing they can do with it is start reducing it and refunding it and and reducing taxes so that they keep so that they quit building it. But um, a creative person would do something creative with it, and right now we don't have that creativity driving the driving the ship right now. We're going to have to end it there. Uh, Michael Leppard, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me. We've been speaking with Michael Leppard. He's the author of Contrary to Popular Belief, a Chronicle of a Progressive in Indiana, a compilation of some of his writings from his uh, blog uh, over the past couple of years. And just a reminder to any listeners, if they want to get a sample before they purchase, where do they go? Uh, to, to read your blog? Uh, they go to contrariana.com, C-O-N-T-R-A-R-I-A-N-A. Contrariana rhymes with indiana.com. All right. Again, Michael Leppard, thank you very much. I'm Will Murphy for Profiles. Thanks for joining us. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer, the studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. You say God be your best friend So help you in every way he can But when he takes his seat Just out of the way Be careful how you vote One that you vote for, I'd let you die. Come on, you and ride. Get you up, man. Talk to me. Talk to me.